You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. This is Research for the Real World. Conversations with researchers and the paths they've taken to help shape our everyday lives. Hello, I'm Rob Webster. I'm an Associate Professor here at the IOE. On this episode, we're talking with Professor Julie Dockrell. Julie is Chair in Psychology and Special Needs and the Director of the Centre for Language, Literacy and Numeracy Research and Practice based at the IOE. Julie is an authority on the development of children's language and communication, and her work is recognised the world over. Her research has a particular focus on language development and childhood disadvantage and inequalities. Julie's work has a strong practical element too, and she's been involved in a number of projects designed to help teachers create classrooms that support language. Today, we're going to talk with Julie about why oral language matters, why some children struggle with it, and what schools can do to support oral language skills and address barriers to learning. Julie, hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello Rob, thank you very much for having me here. Julie, let's start with your professional journey first of all. Can you tell us what got you interested in this area of research and what brought you to the IOE? I started at the very beginning when I finished my undergraduate degree at the University of Stirling. I went on to do a PhD there. And at that time, in the 1980s, there was a question about how children learn new words or vocabulary acquisition. So my PhD was looking at vocabulary acquisition. And when I was doing that research, I realized that some children were finding it easier than others. And from there, I went on to train both as a clinical and as an educational psychologist to sport children's language learning. Getting to the IOE, bit of a journey. So I worked for about five years in practice with children and realized that there was a need for research to try and unpick some of these challenges that are out there. So my first job at the IOE was um, as a lecturer, and then I moved around a bit and came back as a professor here, um, focusing on kids with additional learning needs. Just tell us that the the five years you spent in practice, so you have a, a clinical education, sorry, clinical psychology and educational psychology background. What do you think that brings to this area and this process of research? Oh, for me, it was absolutely invaluable. So some of that time I worked at the Nuffield Hearing and Speech Centre. So I worked with children who had specific language difficulties, or at that time were called specific language impairments, and children who had hearing impairments. I also worked with professionals who focused in these areas, so speech and language therapists and audiologists. So that gave me a different professional perspective on the types of problems um, children have. In parallel, I spent time as an educational psychologist in Norfolk, where I came at it from a completely different angle for some of the challenges that were going on in schools and classrooms and in particular communities. Brilliant. So let's uh, get on to this topic of children's uh, oral language. Um, let's define our terms first of all. So could you define oral language for us first of all and uh, explain why it matters? So At its simplest level, oral language is speaking and listening. But I think also it involves other forms of communication, the way we look at each other, the way we gesture, the kinds of nonverbal communication. So although we say oral language, it's supported by other types of interactions that go on behind the scene, as it were. And I'd say 
it's part of our everyday life. You know, when you listen to this podcast, you may go and speak to somebody about it and you'll use language to explain what you thought about it, what you agreed with or what you disagreed with. And whoever you speak with will then interact with you using language. Now, oral language, I have to say, is not the only kind of language because we also have sign language, which is also a form of language. But I'm focusing on oral language, speaking and listening. So why is it important? I gave you my first example. Oral language is a way you explain to others what your experiences are, what you feel, what you believe. It's also a way you learn. So the individual who listens to you talking about this podcast is learning something about maybe the content of the podcast, but also about your particular um, ideas and views about language. So for children of all ages, oral language is a way of communicating and interacting with others. It then becomes a stepping stone to learning. At the very beginning, learning about social interaction, but then learning at school, accessing the curriculum, and absolutely fundamental to reading and writing. So it's it's foundational to every other aspect of literacy and learning, perhaps. I would agree with you about that. And I, I, let me give you an example. Imagine you ended up in the middle of downtown Beijing and you cannot speak a word of Mandarin or Cantonese. And all you're left with is gestures to get around. Think how challenging that is for you. I, that would terrify me, actually. I, I, <laughs> I have, a, I think, a particular, almost an anxiety about not being understood. And I, I can imagine that for, for children who who develop oral language at slower rates than others would experience, experience life a bit more diff- uh, differently and struggle with things that other children don't. I think that's true. And it certainly can be challenging because they might not understand what's going on. So they're then dependent on watching on others. If they're good at watching what others do, they might know what should happen. But otherwise, they can be somewhat out of their depth. So what are the, the main factors that lead to the, the variation in why, in why some children develop oral language you know, at different rates, at slower rates than other children? I think that the fundamental aspect of language development is language develops by talking with others. So we don't teach children language in the way that you might teach them geography, but language develops from interacting with others, exposures to different social social situations. So it's talking with rather than talking at someone. Okay, So that requires this fundamental aspect of interaction, which is why putting a two-year-old in front of a television is extremely unlikely to support their ability to communicate and interact. And like every other skill in the world, some of us come with a greater propensity or ability to pick up language than others. So there's variation along that line. And at the extreme end, you have children who might have particular problems with what are called now developmental language difficulties or disorders. And they're children who might have trouble learning vocabulary. So the words we use or grammar, how we put words together in sentences, and that becomes particularly challenging for them. The impacts of having a difficulty with oral language can be quite profound for children. Can you tell us some of the challenges children with lower levels of language face? 
Sure. Okay, at the most straightforward level, um, they had difficulties in classrooms interacting with others and responding to teachers. So these, when I mentioned earlier that language was about speaking and listening, we have to think really quite hard. It's not just listening, it's actually understanding. And so if you don't understand language or you don't understand the key words, you can make errors in the classroom, you can misunderstand others. I mean, there's a famous little example from Lori Lee, where the child goes to school for the first day, first day at school, five-year-old, and the teacher says to the little one, will you just sit here for the present? Okay, so the little girl goes home at the end of the day, and the mom says, did you have a nice day at school? And she said, no, the teacher told me to sit here for the present, and I never got a present, and I'm never going back. Very simple example, but you can see how that would mount up. So there's that issue about communication, but also... Let's think about breaking into reading. So we all know that reading is fundamental for learning at school and a whole range of other tasks. And we know that there are ways of supporting children's ability to decode words, what we call phonics. A lot of emphasis on that. But if you have problems with language comprehension, then understanding what you read becomes problematic. So making the inferences from the text, so the idea is what the text actually means, becomes challenging. And we know that children with poor oral language skills, certainly by the time they're about eight or nine, often, not always, often have problems with reading comprehension. But I think my favorite example about oral language has to do with writing. So we've done quite a lot of work now on children's writing skills. And we started with children who had problems with oral language because very little had been done about that at the time we started. And if you cannot express your ideas orally, why would we think you could put them on paper? Especially when writing is such a very complex skill. If you can't get those words out, if you don't have a good vocabulary, and if you don't have the ability to put the words together in grammatical sequence, why could you not, why could you put it on paper? So there we are, two basic skills in school, reading and writing, and also communicating and interacting with others. And are there any social impacts as well? And I'm thinking here about peer relations and and making friends and, and things like that. There are. I think the problem we are struggling with is to understand why the difficulties with peer relationships actually happen. So there are difficulties, there can be difficulties with peer relationships, and there can be difficulties with social emotional behavioral challenges. But exactly what the drivers of that might be Is it the oral language or is it understanding the way someone else is thinking? So there definitely are relationships, but exactly what causes them is not 100% clear. And perhaps let me give you an example that I think supports that problem that we're dealing with. So if you look at children who have an identified language problem, large sample, about 30% of them will have a problem with peers or social interaction. May well be a long-standing problem, take them up into teenage years, but 60 to 70% won't. So we need to find out exactly what's going on. And I think also some of this links to the other dimension that's involved here, and that's the context in which children are growing up and learning and how sensitive that environment is. So it's an interaction between the context and the language. 
So you indicated that there is there's some evidence for the problems developing and, and manifesting in in different ways as the as the children grow. So the eight year olds are having difficulty with with comprehension. I'm curious as to whether if these difficulties are are yeah they they persist and they're they're not sufficiently addressed. Whether there are disadvantages that occur later in life and I'm thinking into adolescence and even into adulthood so is there any evidence of effect as children you know grow through teenage years and into adulthood yeah we know that children who have poor language do less well at school in our conventional assessments um, GCSEs many don't go on to do A levels we also know that in the workplace they tend to have more difficulties It's also very much seen as a hidden problem. I mean, people are more aware of reading difficulties, but language and communication less so. But they certainly can be very longstanding. And I think I'd argue that actually our ability to support children's oral language, we've put more emphasis in in the primary school. So children continue into secondary school with poorer language skills, be it vocabulary or grammar or this social interaction. There's less scope for getting that supported. So you've made it very clear that language is a, is central to, to much of what happens in the classroom. And you say that speech, language and communication is the most common form of child disability, yet it is probably the least well recognised. So why do you think that is? And does it tell us something about how able teachers are to identify these needs? All right. So that's that's a really good point, Rob. And I think there are a number of factors that feed into that. Teachers focus a lot on what they're evaluated on and the way children are assessed. So once you get past foundation stage, pretty much oral language is not assessed. Reading is, reading, you know, maths. You think think of a whole range of subjects. So teachers will be focusing on that. So one of it has to do with what the education, the demands the education system places. Probably the second aspect has to do with the fact that if you look at basic teacher training, there's virtually nothing on oral language. So primary teacher training, you'd be lucky if you get 45 minutes an hour in all of your training that looks at oral language. So if it's not highlighted, why should it be a focus in the classroom. And then the third issue is that a lot of what happens is teachers talking to children rather than with children. And if you're talking to someone, you don't necessarily get that interaction to see where they might be struggling in terms of the understanding aspect. And often there isn't a lot of time in a classroom for child or young person to actually say very much. I want to ask you about some of the, the practical things that perhaps teachers can do to support oral language in a moment. But I just want to return to that point about how or the, the extent to which oral language features as, as as children move through the school. So there's, there's a temptation to think that oral language is all about the early years or it's mostly about the early years, but you're making a very strong case for it being a feature of teaching beyond the early years, so into well past through primary and into secondary school. So is that is that something that happens? I'm thinking particularly here in secondary schools. Is it is oral language much of a feature of of the curriculum or teaching, or is it just sort of you know assumed that it's kind of nailed down by the time children finish primary? 
I think even later in primary, there's not much emphasis so much on the oral language side of it. And certainly I don't think it's much of a focus in secondary school at all. Although a lot of what you're doing in secondary school will be underpinned by your oral language skills. So let me give you two specific examples. If you're in science and you're writing up a lab, that writing up of the lab depends on your ability to use your language to put those ideas, those facts on the paper or to report them if you're doing an oral report. So it actually matters for science. But if you think of other subjects, for example, history, where you, once you get into secondary school, you're learning a much more specialist vocabulary and terminology. And if you don't have what I'm going to call our rich representations. So ideas in your head of words linking together, you're going to struggle because you're then learning items one one by one rather than as a whole concept. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the practical, real-world dimension to the, to the work that you do. And I mentioned in the intro that you've worked on projects and initiatives that have produced materials to help teachers support oral language. So can you tell us a bit about the work behind that and then what kind of impact that is having in schools. Okay, so one of the largest projects that I was involved with was a government-funded project called the Better Communication Research Project. So it was um, involved a number of academics working in a number of different settings. And I worked with a colleague in Newcastle where we led on developing a checklist for teachers to use in their classrooms, particularly reception and key stage one, something called the Communicating Supporting Classroom Tool, which is freely available from the Communication Trust, where teachers could start profiling. They could look at their own classroom learning environments to see how the environment was, what sort of opportunities there were for children to talk with each other, develop their skills, and what kind of interactions were going on that would support language. So it became a tool for them to empower them to map what was happening there in those classrooms. And we've seen a lot of interest in that, where in some schools, teachers have videoed each other. It's being used in Sweden and New Zealand to look at those classrooms. Now, I want to give you a particular example to show that this is not about doing something magical. This is about the way we communicate with children. And it's an example which was I saw when we were developing the tool by a year two teacher, and he was teaching handwriting. Okay, so handwriting, you can go into some year two classes and you'll see lots of children sitting around copying from their handwriting book quietly. But he stood at the beginning of the class, at the top of the class, and he talked children through what they were doing. So imagine they were writing the letter L. He would say, you start right here on the page, and then you swing up and do a great big loop, and then you come around. And he talked the children. So he gave the children a language way basis for their handwriting. And then he turned to one little girl, and he said, I'm going to ask you to do this for me in a minute. But he asked another child to come up and to talk the through. So this other little child came up, talked it through. And then the little girl, who clearly wasn't so strong in oral language, had two role models to do it. And then she came up and talked it through. So when we talk about how language can be just built in in the classroom, it doesn't have to be something special. It's just the way you think about communication and interaction. That seems quite... I'll just relate that to something that you said earlier, that 
one of the, the tensions for teachers seems to be that there's one teacher in the class and maybe up to 30 children. So there's almost a logistical problem there in, in terms of how much time teachers can spend with children. But the, the example you've gave there is using, seems to me to be using the pu- some of the pupils as a resource to help the children who are struggling. Is that, is that what was going on there? And is that something that you see a lot of in practice in, in classrooms? I think that was a, it, that's how it was being used in that context. And I think we learn language not only from, you know, in, in, as a child from a teacher or communicating, talking with a teacher, but also from communicating and talking with your peers. So I think that's absolutely a resource that can be used. But it does mean that the teacher has to think, you know, if they're going to do something about, for example, talking partners, they have to make sure that the task is okay for developing communication between two children, but also that they put together children who will be able to support each other in different ways. So yeah, absolutely, it can be a resource, but it does take some knowledge and planning by the teacher to allow that to happen. It's the thoughtfulness, isn't it? I think that sometimes we need, we'd like to, we'd like teachers to be able to draw out. It reminds me of something I've seen in in schools several times. I mean, you have children who perhaps struggle with speech and language, and there might be three or four of them in the class, and they're taken out usually by the teaching assistant to develop their speech and language skills. And the TA works heroically with these children, but often some of the best models for the for the language are back in the classroom with their peers who are a little bit more advanced. So, and that seems to me to be something that can be addressed by just a little bit more thoughtful structuring of of who's involved and what the children are being exposed to. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it depends on your model about how teaching and learning should happen. And it seems to me that all children should have access to good oral language opportunities in the classroom. So that depends on the teacher and the TAs in the classroom. Some children will require additional support, but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be getting what's also the good stuff that's going on in the classroom. Absolutely. So no research for the Real World podcast is complete without a COVID-19 related question. So as we're recording this podcast, the schools are going back after the summer break. And it has been for, for many children and families an extended period of time at home and away from school. So Julie, what kind of impact do you think that long layoff from school may have had on the children who struggle with oral language? Well, like a lot of things, it's going to depend on the situation that they were in. So for some children, the fact that they've been at home and maybe their parents have been at home too, and there'd be more opportunities for talking with parents. So, you know, I gave you the handwriting example, but you can talk with children when you're making biscuits or cakes or in the garden so for some children there will have been a good opportunity to support and develop their oral language for other children those opportunities will not have been there for a range of different issues because of pressure on the family because of pressure on space and these are the children who I think I'm most concerned about because these are the children who often started school 
or nursery with poor oral language skills who are going to be further challenged because of this lack of exposure or interaction around language and communication. You gave an example there of, of something that parents might be able to do in, in terms of providing a, a commentary on, on something. So if they're, if they're doing some baking, they can talk through those processes with your child. Is there, is there anything else, perhaps, any other tips or tricks that parents could do to support oral language development at home? Absolutely. You can not just read to a child, but you can read with a child, talking about the book, getting them at at any age, getting them to think about what's going to happen next. So you're using their comprehension skills or asking them why something's happening in a book. So, you know, books and stories are a wonderful opportunity to scaffold and support language. There are all sorts of games that you can do outside that, you know, many of us will see children in the parks playing these games around that use oral language. So there are lots of opportunities that parents will have or parents may have. As Again, I want to point out that there will be some parents who don't have these opportunities if they're you know, key workers or if they're under a lot of stress for a variety of reasons. But you know, there are lots of oral language things you can do talking with children. Julie, I wanted to ask you about another barrier to learning that struck me as important as I was doing my homework for this podcast, and that's around noise. Now, you've looked at the effects of noise on children in classrooms. Could you tell us what the main sources of noise are in and around school and how that affects children and teachers? So noise has been something that's not been the focus, perhaps as much work as there should have been around learning. And I got interested in noise because of two reasons. I worked with an acoustician at London South Bank uh, University, Bridget Shields, who was interested in noise in schools. And from some of the children I was working with who were saying they were finding it difficult in the classroom because they found the sound was bouncing off walls. The two main sources of noise in classrooms, one is external. So you could be in a school under a flight path or with a busy road around you. And the other is internal. And that's the noise that's created by the children themselves in the classroom. These two different types of noise have different effects, but they differentially are bad. So they're worse for children who are challenged either with language or reading. So that noise they find harder or hearing. So children who have hearing problems find it much harder when they're noisy backgrounds like that. There are lots of things that can be done about it. Some of them are structural, which is what people have tried to do under the flight paths around airports, which have made a difference. And others have to do with how you manage classroom um, noise environments and learning environments. So actually being able to see the teacher's face is quite helpful for communication. Some of our classrooms previously haven't been structured in that way. Making sure that there are quiet times within classrooms. For some of the little ones, you know, these very loud sort of nursery settings, you know, making sure that there's a management about how noise uh, occurs in those settings. That's brilliant. Some excellent practical examples there that, that teachers are, who, who are listening might be able to to take on board. Julie, it's been great to have you on the podcast and to learn about oral language and the work that you do. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. As ever, you can find links to our guest research online via the episode notes and you can keep up with the activities of the Centre for Language, Literacy and Numeracy on Twitter and their handle is at lang underscore lit underscore num. 
If you're new to the Research for the Real World podcast, we very much hope you enjoyed this episode. Whether you're new to us or a regular listener, we'd very much appreciate hearing your views about the podcast and to hear your suggestions for future topics. There's a link to a short feedback survey in the episode notes. If you can spare one one or two minutes to fill it out, you'll be doing us an immense kindness. Do check out our back catalogue of podcast episodes and our Spotify playlist of songs chosen by our guests and the IOE podcast team. It's all on our UCL webpage. Just search Research for the Real World. I'm Rob Webster. Goodbye. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 